New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore the phenomenon of physical mediumship. With me is Professor Stephen Browdy, former chair. the limits of influence, immortal remains, ESP and psychokinesis, and crimes of reason, as well as the gold leaf lady. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, before we started the interview, physical mediumship is a rather odd term, especially to modern ears, because mediumship itself and spiritualism is so, I guess, out of fashion these days. Uh, it, although in the 19th century, it was a huge uh, fad. A major fad. And the term physical mediumship makes sense when you put it in a kind of historical context. So when people think of mediumship, what they usually think of is mental mediumship, where a medium receives impressions or seems to manifest a disembodied agent speaking through them, something of that sort. Right. During the heyday of the spiritualist movement in the mid-19th century, some mediums were getting, instead of mental impressions, they seemed to be mediating physical phenomena, which seemed to be attempts by spirits to communicate. These could have been raps in the table, and often people who were receiving these raps asked the communicating spirits to communicate by means of a code, for example, rapping twice for yes and three times for no or perhaps tilting a table twice for yes and three times for no. Mm -hmm. And that led to many other sorts of manifestations like the table just levitating and even more exotically, people producing partial or full materializations of allegedly communicating entities. Through using a substance that would exude from their bodies that came to be called ectoplasm. Sometimes it seemed to exude from their bodies, sometimes it just seemed to appear. There mm -hmm. wasn't any clear path leading from the medium to the apparently materialized substance. Mm -hmm. Now, today, most people, even including many parapsychologists, tend to view all of these reports from the, mostly from the early 20th century and the late 19th century as, as being uh, unbelievable uh, in, in effect, because uh, the phenomenon doesn't occur very much like this anymore. Well, you have to be careful stating that data. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know to what extent it occurs anymore. Certainly, these days, physical mediumship in developed countries isn't the fad that it once was, yeah. but it hasn't disappeared. It's just been driven underground. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, I think you can sympathize with the people who are today physical mediums. You know, professing oneself to be a physical medium isn't quite on a par with saying that you're a child molester, but it still is a way of asking for trouble. Almost inevitably, somebody is going to accuse you of being a, a fraud or even worse, perhaps a criminal. Right. And so in developed countries, you don't see much of it. 
except in enclaves where people are still enthusiastic about physical mediumship. But in undeveloped countries, various kinds of parallel to physical mediumship still occur mm -hmm. in shamanistic contexts. Well, today people would think about these phenomena, I suppose, in terms of what parapsychologists call macro-psychokinesis. Yes, psychokinesis on or having to do with medium size or large size objects. Mm -hmm not requiring statistical tests to indicate that the, uh, the phenomena occurred. And I suppose it's fair to say that even today, macro-psychokinesis is not a popular topic, even among parapsychologists. No, and I think it's rejected for the flimsiest of reasons. Uh, usually people want to attack the reliability of eyewitness testimony, which is pretty much what's required in some of these cases. Although I have to say that Many of the best accounts of physical mediumship are from quasi or semi-experimental contexts, mm -hmm. and we can talk about what some of those were. Yes. But the attempt to impugn eyewitness testimony in these cases is, I think, a very weak skeptical ploy to adopt. Well, um, let's talk about some of the strongest cases. I think we can really get it at what we're talking about by addressing, for example, uh, Daniel Douglas Home or Hume, Hume it would be Hume. pronounced spelled H O M E, pronounced right. Hume. Arguably the greatest physical medium of all time. Mm -hmm. um, his career lasted almost a quarter of a century. He was never once detected in fraud of any kind. Of course, there were uh, allegations that he had cheated, but all of those were second or third hand, and none was ever substantiated. Mm -hmm. um, what's important about Hume's case is that. For this 25-year period, over literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seances, many of them were conducted at the spur of the moment in locations where he'd never been before, so there was no chance for him to have planted an apparatus or concealed a confederate. And the phenomena were, in many cases, beyond even today's technology. Mm -hmm. Such as? Well, perhaps the most exotic would be the materialization of uh, hands that ended at the wrist mm -hmm. that were warm, mobile, fleshy, uh, of different shapes and sizes. They were never retracted at the end as if Hume had simply concealed something up his sleeve and then was trying to retrieve it. In fact, people could shake hands with these hands. They felt that they were warm and lifelike. They could poke holes through the hands. The holes would then fill up. And most remarkably, and the reason I say this is beyond today's technology, the hands would dissolve in their grasp. Mm -hmm. The hands would also carry objects around. So people, even if they didn't see the hands from every angle, they could see the object moving through the air that the hands were carrying. And I suppose it's fair to say that this particular manifestation would have been consistent with the idea that uh, spirits were producing the phenomena. In many cases it seemed that way because some people reported that the hands had characteristic deformations of uh, deceased people whom they knew. Mm -hmm. now, I, I think you have to take that testimony with a grain of salt. There could be a lot of wishful thinking in seeing those deformations. Yeah. But the fact that people had tactile and kinesthetic contact with the hands themselves and the hands would then dissolve in their grasp. Uh, they, they clearly were not just stuffed gloves or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. Now, the Society for Psychical Research was uh, founded in <coughs> England uh, in the latter half of the 19th century. Right. Uh, and many of the great researchers of that era were very interested in phenomena like this. 
um, they had an ambivalent attitude toward the phenomena. There was a prejudice in the SPR uh, against physical mediumship and physical phenomena, as opposed to what they considered the higher forms of uh, parapsychological phenomena, mm -hmm. meaning the mental phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, so there were some pretty rabid and inflexible skeptics. Uh, Even in the society. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yet there were people like, well, Sir William Crookes, one of the great scientists of the 19th century, uh, who later, after all of his researches in the paranormal, was elected president of the uh, Royal Scientific Society. Uh, yes, and members of the Royal Society weren't always happy about that once he started doing his research, and they tried to give him uh, some trouble about that. Yeah, uh, and, but he reported some extraordinary uh, things with Hume. My favorite example from Crookes' studies of Hume has to do with uh, Hume's accordion phenomena. Yes. So what you need to know is that Hume would reportedly make accordions play sometimes untouched, floating around the room, or at least held at the end away from the keys. Mm -hmm. And allegedly the accordions could play melodies on request. Now, Hume had said that the phenomena for the accordion playing was strongest underneath the seance table. And superficially, at least, that sounds somewhat suspicious. Yeah. But Crookes was an ingenious person, and he realized that if he wanted to really test this, it probably wasn't a good idea to force Hume any more than necessary out of his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So here's what he did. First of all, he bought a new accordion. So there could be no doubt that the accordion in question wasn't one of Hume's props that he had somehow managed to rig. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he went to Hume's apartment, watched him change clothes to make sure he wasn't concealing some sort of device on his person. Although I have to remind you, this was 1871. It's not clear what kind of uh, miniaturized device could have made accordions play melodies on request. Nor did they have x-ray technology to uh, see what he might conceal inside his body. Right. So. He then, Crooks then brought Hume to his house, mm -hmm. where Crooks had constructed a cage made out, made out of wire and wood that just fit under his dining room table. There was room for Hume to get his hand under the table and in the cage to hold the accordion at the end away from the keys. There wasn't enough room for Hume to get his hand deeply into the cage to manipulate the accordion. Right. There were nine observers present, two stationed on either side of Hume to make sure he wasn't taking his feet out of his boots although even if he had, there was still a cage down there. There was another observer stationed under the table with a lamp watching what was going on. Under those conditions, the accordion was seen to move in and out, the keys were depressed, sounds came out of the accordion. Hume was then asked to take his hand out of the cage, place both hands on the table, an electric current was run through the cage. The accordion was still seen to flop around inside the cage. Mm -hmm. Now. I consider that one of the strongest experiments in the history of parapsychology. No magician, despite their bluster, has been able to duplicate that phenomenon under conditions anything like those in which Hume succeeded, mm -hmm. and I think for good reason. Mm -hmm. Do you accept the spiritualist hypothesis as to how these phenomena were produced? I'm not ready to go that far. Mm -hmm. um, we have evidence for psychokinesis without having to posit disembodied agency. Um, and in many cases, it looks as if there are perfectly mundane reasons why the medium succeed or fail, which make most sense in terms of their own psychology. Yes, it does seem as if the um, social environment, the uh, numinous uh, quality of a spiritualist seance brings certain phenomena out, uh, out to the fore that wouldn't otherwise occur. 
Well, we often ask why we saw so much of this in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century and see relatively little of it now. And I think one of the main reasons for that is that all of the great physical mediums of the era were convinced spiritists. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily uh, adherents to the spiritualist religion, but they all believed that they were simply literally mediums for the phenomena, that mm -hmm. they were just conduits uh, between um, the spirit world and this world. Psychologically, it might have been much more difficult for them to accept that they themselves were the source. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. I think this situation, this mediumistic environment, took them off the hook psychologically no matter what happened. So if no phenomena occurred, or if only an interesting phenomenon occurred, the mediums didn't have to feel like failures. They could always attribute the apparent failure to an inept communicator or to a bad link with the spirit world. Mm -hmm. And then as you intimated, if they succeeded, if they got good phenomena, they didn't have to fear what Freud called the, the omnipotence of thought. They didn't have to think to themselves, wow, if I can do this in the safe confines of a seance, who knows what havoc I might be wreaking when the seance is over. Mm -hmm. So they were off the hook, literally. Yeah. One of the other uh, types of phenomenon that Hume, and not just Hume, but other mediums produced is levitation. Um, levitation not only of himself, but of other objects. Mm -hmm. The Levitations of Hume himself are not as well attested as the levitations of sometimes pianos or large wooden tables seating 14 people. Mm -hmm. And what interests me about those is not simply that people saw the levitations, but in many cases the tables dragged them around the room. Many people would sit on the tables, they'd be carried around the room, or if the tables were levitating, um, they had trouble getting them to the ground. Mm -hmm. Now today, when people read reports like that, uh, they I think the typical modern reader just can't accept it on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's no good reason to deny it either. Um, it's mind-boggling, and it really is a test of people's boggle threshold. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has been of mine. I saw, my, as we have discussed on many occasions, I've seen my own table rise in the air. Yes, that's one of the uh, re impetuses for you to explore this phenomenon. It's what sent me down this thorny road, yes. No. Well, um, these phenomena are not just limited to 19th century mediums. Uh, I know you've written a fascinating uh, case going back much earlier, uh, Catholic Saint Joseph of Copertino. Uh, yes, the 17th century flying friar, one mm -hmm. of my favorite cases. It's a fantastic case. And I know people have a kind of instinctive prejudice against testimony that's so old, especially having to do with religious miracles, because it's all too easy to think that the testimony in favor of the phenomena is really nothing but the ravings of religious zealots. Yeah. But what's great about the case of Joseph is that it's strong exactly where you would expect it to be weak. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the people who testified to Joseph's phenomena were people who had nothing to gain and sometimes things to lose by um, reporting the phenomena. Um, they weren't even necessarily members of the Catholic Church. And perhaps even more interesting, um, the Catholic Church itself subjected the testimony in favor of Joseph's phenomena to exceptional scrutiny, and not only for the standard reasons that they don't want to be embarrassed later by having endorsed a fraud or having made an egregious error, um, 
but because by all accounts Joseph was a public relations nightmare. Mm -hmm. uh, he isn't the kind of person that the Catholic Church would have wanted as a standard bearer or as an advertisement for Catholicism. Not necessarily a, a, a saintly person in the conventional sense. Certainly not. I mean his um, piety was never in question, but his sanity was. Mm -hmm. And he was an extreme ascetic. He would scourge himself with whips of his own devising. His body was covered with festering sores. Um, he wore a hair shirt. He sprinkled his food with the noxious powder that he cooked up and which made other people seriously, physically ill. He, his behavior was so bizarre that he was uh, asked to not dine with the other monks. Um, he was forbidden from uh, choir practice, I believe. Mm -hmm. and. If it wasn't for the fact that his, that his phenomena were so well attested, um, I think the Catholic Church would have been very happy to ignore him altogether. He levitated in church during religious ceremonies in front of many people. All that was required for Joseph to levitate was something to excite his piety. I mean, it could be a remark that somebody made, it could be the sight of the Pope. Um, not only did he levitate in church, he levitated outside in broad daylight. So there are many reports of Joseph levitating onto the branches of trees that ordinarily would have been too light to support him, and he was remaining there for some period of time. Sometimes he would carry people with him, in one case by the hair, which allegedly cured that person of lunacy. That was um, 17th century form of shock therapy, I think. Um, and when Joseph levitated in the church, he would often levitate up to the top of the altar among candles and so mm -hmm. on. And people would report from different independent accounts that the uh, candles were never extinguished, that Joseph's uh, robes would not move in the wind. Mm -hmm. And so we have a convergence of testimony from many different independent sources, uh, and also including Joseph's physicians who were trying to cauterize some of his wounds. And while one physician was working on Joseph's uh, wounds, he noticed that Joseph was levitating several inches above his chair. Mm -hmm. He passed his hands underneath the chair to make sure that he wasn't deceived about that, called over some other physicians who uh, agreed to it, and Joseph stayed like that for about 30 minutes. And I, as I recall, one of the church officials who uh, launched the investigation into these phenomena had uh, actually written a very sensible document as to how to go about uh, investigating. Yes, he was the author of the standard procedures adopted still today for canonization. That's mm -hmm. right. So these phenomena seem so unusual, so truly unbelievable, I think largely because they're so rare. They're, they're rare, but they're both rare and conspicuous. I mm -hmm. think that's the trick. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't really know to what extent large-scale phenomena are rare, because if the phenomena can occur at all, for all we know, they might be occurring, but not in a conspicuous way in everyday life. I mean, we wonder why people, some people are remarkably lucky or unlucky, or why um, some people are remarkably healthy, or some people seem to be remarkably um, unhealthy. And, for, you know, we tend to assume that psychokinesis is something that has to operate outside the body. Mm -hmm. But that, I think, is a very careless assumption. We don't understand what psychokinesis is. We do know that it's something that appears to circumvent normal causal chains. Mm -hmm. But we don't understand psychosomatic ailments. We don't understand um, apparently miraculous healings. We don't understand how, through hypnosis, somebody can raise welts on the skin. Well, these are all... Um 
smaller scale phenomenon than a person levitating uh, to the extent that I, I think you, you report other people try to grab onto them and pull them down and are, are unable to do so. Yes. Or uh, a heavy table levitating. Uh, that's the sort of thing that... Uh, fair enough. Those are rare. They are rare. Uh, and w what you're saying is the implication of, of that is that uh, even for the masses of people who don't experience such extraordinary things, we may all be producing uh, psychokinesis uh, to a lesser degree. Well, the, the other context in which these phenomena are sometimes reported, a non-mediumistic context, would be poltergeist cases. Mm -hmm. And if the phenomena make sense in terms of some psychodynamic that's uh, occurring, whether it's a mediumistic psychodynamic or a troubled teenager, yeah. um, then you can understand why the phenomena seem linked to a particular set of needs and interests. Mm -hmm. In that connection, I have to mention the case of the gold leaf lady. Yes, which you investigated and which is uh, the first chapter in your fascinating book, The Gold Leaf Lady. Let's talk about that. Superficially, it looks like uh, a case that's psychodynamically like poltergeist cases. Mm -hmm. This is a Florida woman who at the time was in her 50s. Um, her body would break out instantaneously and spontaneously in a kind of golden colored foil. And it all began in her case when all her psychic abilities began when she married her current and second husband. And by all accounts, it's a difficult uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. So Katie was having various poltergeist-like things happening around her in the house. Meaning objects flying about? Um, appearing and disappearing, moving inexplicably, and mm -hmm. so on. And on one occasion, a carving set appeared out of nowhere. And Katie's husband said to her, well, what good is it if it isn't money? And then two days later, Katie's body started to break out in what looks like golden foil or gold leaf. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's actually not gold, it turned out to be brass. You had it analyzed. Yes. So 80% copper, 20% zinc. Mm -hmm. um, looks very much like a kind of commercially available brass foil you can buy that's called composition leaf or Dutch metal. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly not the sort of thing that uh, would ever normally exude from a person's body. I think you have to be careful to say about saying that it yeah. was exuded from her body. It appeared uh -huh. on her body. Okay. Um, although her body would sometimes glisten a little bit before it actually appeared. Mm -hmm. But the reason I say you have to be careful about that is that if she were literally sweating this or exuding it, I think she would have had to have lethal amounts of copper and zinc in her system. Yeah. And because it also sometimes apparently appeared on her clothes and in objects around mm -hmm. the room. So you would call it a materialization. Or an airport, something mm -hmm. brought from one location to another location. Yes. And it's, it's not clear which of those it mm -hmm. really is. Um, but the reason I say this is like a poltergeist case is that it makes sense in terms of what was going on in Katie's marriage. At least mm -hmm. to me it makes sense. Yes. I think I understand the psychogenesis of it. If the foil wasn't really gold, mm -hmm. then it was a way of Katie expressing her um, feelings about her marriage. She wasn't really giving her husband what he wanted. Um, he wanted something valuable, and she was giving him a kind of fool's gold. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, in a way giving him the psychic finger. And so I think it was a way of expressing her rage against her husband as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you advocate looking at the psychodynamics behind these kinds of phenomena. I agree with those who think that the real, since we have no controlled way of studying the phenomena, literally a controlled way, just 
shielding everybody but the presumed subject from the, mm -hmm. uh, the causal network. Um, to me, the real action is trying to understand why the phenomena take the form that they do. And um, if they make sense, if the phenomena make sense in terms of what's going on in the subject's life, as they do in poltergeist cases, mm -hmm. and in Katie's case, I think, as well, mm -hmm. then at least we have a handle on something important, and we might be able to look for certain kinds of regularities between various cases of mm -hmm. the same kind. Mm -hmm. Now, as a professional philosopher, looking at phenomena of, of this sort, uh, you've made a very strong case that uh, the people who discount it, dismiss it because these things are too unbelievable to be true or we can't re rely on eyewitness testimony or half a dozen other arguments that are usually used to sweep all of this type of uh, large-scale psychokinesis macro PK, as it were, under the floor, uh, you think that those are all basically uh, illegitimate arguments. There are a bunch of them. We can't cover them all, I'm sure, but yeah. one of them is I call the argument from human bias, the mm -hmm. idea that witnesses to these events were simply biased in favor of the paranormal or certain specific phenomena and just reported um, what they were predisposed to see. Mm -hmm. Now, no doubt that is the case in some instances. Yeah. But what we need to understand, first of all, is that argument's a double-edged sword. Uh, that if witnesses in favor of the phenomena can um, give biased testimony, so might witnesses uh, pre-theoretically opposed to the phenomena. Sure. And there are plenty of cases where skeptics' uh, testimony needs to be uh, given the same kind of uh, skeptical once-over as the testimony from adherents of the phenomena. Mm -hmm. But even more important, there are many cases where the witnesses to the phenomena have actually been biased against reporting the phenomena. Which I think would make them even more credible. Uh, and I think they that is the case. Mm -hmm. One of the best examples of that would be the report of the uh, three skeptics who investigated Eusebio Palladino in Naples in 1908. Yes, we haven't even had time to uh, explore the case of Palladino, uh, another great physical medium of the 19th century. Do we have time now? Well, no, we'll have to save that for uh, another occasion. I know we could go on and on because, in, in truth, there are dozens of cases like this. Right. In, in, in fact, I've written a whole book about a, a modern case yes, associated right. with UFOs. So right. uh, we could talk about macro PK again and again, and I hope that we do. Uh, but for now, actually, yeah, our time is up. So, Stephen Browdy, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for being with us.